Thanks, Ty. <clears throat> cool. Thought you did fine. We're, uh, you know, guys, we, we uh, love to see extensions of, of, extensions of Church at Bergen go and do things. Uh, in the name of Jesus, for Jesus, uh, Tyler got to get connected to a great Acts 29 church down there in Georgia uh, that he's been attending and fellowshipping in. And uh, it's been great just seeing him give his life to uh, seeing other children and people know Jesus. He was sharing a lot of stories about just even inner city kids that he was getting to know through the soccer program and getting to just sow seeds of who Jesus is and share the gospel and uh, hand out Bibles. And that's just, it's amazing work. And so I, I just, um, I just feel like it's so easy to miss the, the beauty and glory in the little things. Uh, that, that's glorious. Uh, what he's doing is not like some uh, small, insignificant, oh, that's, we want to see something bigger. No, that's, that's gloriously beautiful. Uh, he's being faithful. He's using the ways that God's wired him and gifted him uh, to advance the kingdom. So uh, that's what we love to see because God's made all of us differently. You know, we talk about 1 Corinthians 12 all the time, different parts of the body, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, feet. Like we're all doing it the unique ways and the ways that God has flushed us out and can be used. Nothing's better, nothing's worse, nothing's more significant or less. And so uh, just pray for him. Uh, pray for just his, his energy, his words. Pray that God would provide all that he needs to keep doing that ministry. Um, and I just feel free to ask him questions after the service if you want. Talk to him. Hear some more of the ways that God is, God is at work. So um, just before we dive into Luke 7, just a few uh, updates. Um, just for prayer, the Copes were near France. You know that, that we had that really bad uh, terrorist attack that occurred uh, a day ago. Uh, the Copes, praise God, are, are fine. There are covenant members here. and We were able to uh, get a hold of them. They'll be coming back tomorrow. Just pray that they're able to get back home because, uh, you know, they shut the borders of... Uh, of the country, so, uh, but they're doing well, uh, they're praying for that, uh, for that place, and l- listen, you know, the, these things are going to continue to happen, we have to keep remembering that, that the reason we're gathering is because life is real, so the reason we gather to be reminded of the good news of Jesus is because that's the only thing that's going to ultimately uh, save anything, fix anything, uh, because this is only going to keep happening, but we know the end of the historical view, the end of the story, the end of the film doesn't end with terrorism. It ends with a just, right God making all things right. And so we rejoice, we long for that day, and we pray that God would use his gospel, advance his gospel, put his gospel in France through churches, through people preaching the word of God and gathering. Um, so pray for, we have some, uh, actually we just heard this past week, we we're down in Dallas with the Acts 29 Network um, as elders, just learning uh, more about what the vision is and where we're headed. And um, there's a guy actually planting a church through Acts 29 right in the heart of France, right in the city, right there. Uh, and so he just, we need to pray for him and his church and uh, the, the needs uh, and the ways that he will need to stand and, and, uh, and be a great ambassador of comfort uh, to people in a, in a desperate time of need. So, so pray for, for that. We also, um, the Skays, Bob and Karen, um, their daughter had a hip replacement. Uh, praise God, I, I believe it, it's done. And she's going to have a little bit of a road uh, of recovery. So keep praying for, for Bob and Karen uh, Skay as well. And then uh, a, a rejoicing note, the Nines had their baby, uh, Alyssa and Tim. So uh, that's why they're not here. I told them you should be here. I, I, I was trying to force them as they were, you know, <laughs> Alyssa's like, I just put a baby out. I was like, okay, uh, you guys can miss. So um, she's, uh, they're doing great. Jonah, uh, Nye, uh, just beautiful little little boy. And uh, we just praise God for his grace and kindness in that way. So um, let's just go before the Lord, ask him to help us to see what he wants us to see this morning and uh, just ask him to be good in the midst of evil, which he is. God, thank you that, that you're all knowing, that you're sovereign, that you're, you're trustworthy. Uh, God, thank you in, in times of confusion where we see continued evidence of the fractured world we live in, the sin that is staining and continuing to bring about evil wickedness. God, we, we are thankful that we know the remedy for souls 
God, we're thankful that all of us at one point were living a terrorist life towards you, not wanting you, not loving you. God, I pray that you would show grace to these men, that you would save out of these organizations men that would be transformed by the gospel, that would be like Paul, who was a terrorist among Christians. God, who you used to write half of the New Testament and be a testimony of your saving power. God, we also pray that your justice would be revealed and shown. God, we pray that you would give us courage and wisdom as how to speak, how to act. We pray for uh, our brother in Paris who's looking to birth a church and gather a people. God, we pray for courage for him, for perseverance for him, for stamina for him, for great love. May people be drawn to the King of kings and Lord of lords through this horrific past couple of days. God, we pray for families that are weeping and mourning. We would feel some of that. God, I know we're so isolated in our bubble, in our world. God, may we feel the burden and carry some of that for blood-bought brothers and sisters, not only in France, but around this world that are being persecuted in ways we will never fathom. Thank you for the word. Thank you that in, in light of this, we can come this morning and just look at your Bible, look at your scriptures, look at your written word to us in freedom. I pray we treasure that and enjoy that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 7. We are in the gospel according to Luke. That's the book that we've been uh, walking through as a church. And so if you are just hopping in or new to kind of this whole thing or even Christianity, uh, Luke is really writing. He's this guy who was a a doctor, a physician who followed Paul. Paul was an apostle of Jesus. He was a guy who wrote a lot of the letters uh, of the New Testament. And he followed him. He was a faithful companion of his through his missionary journeys as he planted churches and preached the gospel. And um, Luke is someone who's writing to a Roman official who's a bit of a, bit of a skeptic, unsure of the life and teachings of Jesus. So listen, if you're in this room and you're, you're a skeptic of Christianity and the things of God, you're in really good company right now. Uh, you're welcome. You're, you're, we're excited that you're here. We want you to know that his, trustworthy, that, he's, that his teachings and life is trustworthy. Not just trustworthy, but it is ultimately transformative. So um, Jesus' life and teachings that we stare at in the Gospel of Luke is not meant so that we just come in here. I say it all the time. I want to keep saying it. It's not just so you learn more about it. His life and teachings. Like his life and teachings is meant to make you new in by seeing his divine nature, his humanity, his godness, his humanness, and the way that God profoundly works through his son to rescue a broken, fractured world to himself and make all things right in his people, which are the church, and ultimately in the new heavens, which will come. So we want you to see that, be moved by that, and be changed by that. So now you view the world through a kingdom of heaven lens. Hey, you, don't, you don't view it through a worldly lens. And that's why Jesus has just come off of one of his most famous teachings, one of his most famous sermons called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount was basically where he basically rolls out what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Okay, what does it mean to be someone who knows God and is saved by God and rescued by God? And he kind of rolls through how they're spiritually poor. They, they understand their depravity before God. They're keenly aware of their need for grace. They don't hunger for their own righteousness, but a righteousness outside of themselves that is given in Jesus. They are not thought well of by everyone. There might be some persecution. There might be some rubbing of shoulders. They, they are people who just love Jesus and ultimately want to be seen as his. And so that goes into loving your enemies and producing things that aren't natural in your life. But because the gospel, the good news has changed you so much, you're able to do these things through the power of the Holy Spirit as you look at the divine gift and sacrifice of Jesus. And so um, as all of those things happen, he ended with, okay, through all of this, you're hearing other teachings. 
Okay, you're, you're hearing people add stuff to Jesus. You're hearing people say that, well, it's not really about just this finished work of Jesus, but what you do and your merits and your works and your morality and your good behavior and God owes you when you do something right and then you gotta pay him back when you don't follow him well. And so it's this contract-based relationship in the Jewish leaders of the day. And Jesus comes preaching a totally different belief. Salvation comes for those that throw themselves on the mercy of Christ, which is himself. So it's kind of funny how he's ultimately always talking about shadows of himself, which is why Luke 4, he says, I'm revealing, I'm fulfilling all of these things that the Old Testament was pointing to. I'm going to fulfill the law for you. I'm going to be obedient for you. I'm going to be the sacrifice for you. All the things that the believer saw. So here's what we're going to see this, this morning. And you've got to remember, Luke is never random in where he places stuff. So he doesn't just, he's not divinely inspired by the Spirit and just whimsically writing stuff out. Oh, this, this kind of fits here. Yeah, I'm kind of bored. How about a centurion servant? Okay, so he, he put that in here. This, this Roman centurion servant who gets healed purposely, not just for chronological reasons, which it is, but, but theological reasons. Um, and one of the main reasons is, what did he just finish preaching? He, he just finished laying out for you what someone in the kingdom of God looks like. What is someone with a beatitude? And he's going to show you someone who looks like that. He's going to show you that this, this person, this Roman centurion, ultimately is aware of his deep need for grace. He's aware of his need for righteousness. And he, and he displays character that, that is otherworldly. So we're going to look at that and see the shadows of the gospel here in uh, this um, this uh, section right here. And we're also going to see, as you look in these first ten verses, a continuation of the divide of Jesus' teaching and the religious leaders' teaching. You're going to keep seeing that throughout the gospel of Luke, right? You're going to see the religious leaders of the day saying, who were self-righteous, saw no need for forgiveness, no need for grace, no need for mercy. Okay, they're going to keep teaching this understanding that we love who loves us. We only give those who give to us. We're, we're good to those who are good to us. We want to be thought well of by everybody. A, a, a wrong view of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is coming around going, no, it's not about at all what you do. It's about what Jesus has already done. So you look at him, enjoy him, throw yourselves on him. You're covered in him. You're rescued by him. Then you live differently in light of that. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to see how he plays this out. Pick it up in verse 1. Uh, Luke's going to write this for us. He says, after he, this is Jesus, had finished all his sayings and hearings. You can go to the slide there, Andre. Just put up verse 1 there. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, this is the Sermon on the Mount, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum was like his just home base for ministry. It was right adjacent to uh, Galilee where he preached this Sermon on the Mount. And a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Okay, so Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount. It's profound. Matthew's Gospel details it a lot more. Uh, Luke only includes 29 verses because that's all he needs to get across his point for his Gospel. And uh, as he begins, as he finishes the sermon, he just goes about his ministry, continues his earthly ministry. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. And then Luke kind of gives us these, um, these two characters. <laughs> two guys he brings in. One's a Roman centurion and one's his servant. Okay? Um, a Roman centurion is just a, a Roman soldier, okay? And the, the reason they call him a centurion is because he led probably about 100 men. That's where we get the word century from, right, 100 years. So, so he led about 100 men. And listen, he was like a man's man, 
I mean, he was, he was tough, he was prominent, he must have worked the ranks, he must have worked his way up to a prestigious spot to become a, a centurion over a group of people. He loved commanding people, loved telling people what to do. He understood what that was like. Okay, so, so this guy is a, a rough-edged guy who, who worked himself up. He is successful, he is prominent, he loves just being in authority and in charge. Okay, that's, this, that's who this Roman centurion is. He's well established. And there were kind of uh, two main reasons that uh, they started putting these centurions all around towns and cities in Jerusalem. Uh, just to keep the peace and to pay taxes. To collect them. Okay, now, now we, we remember back when, when Jesus called Levi the tax collector. Right? And, and just how there is a massive rub between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, the Jews thought these Gentiles were so wicked and awful because they're invading our promised land. They're wanting to govern our promised land. So there was not good relationship between Gentiles and Jews, which means this centurion, by nature, should have had not a favorable position towards Jews. Okay? They didn't, they didn't like, Jews didn't, weren't thrilled about Roman centurions. They didn't love them. They didn't think well of, they, didn't, they weren't thought well of. And so uh, here we have the Roman centurion, and then Luke tells us there's a servant of the centurion, and he's sick. And he's not just sick, he's deathly sick. So he's really sick. Right, he's on the hospital bed, he's on his way out. Okay, this is not like a guy that just has a fever or has the flu. This is a servant who is really, really, really sick, and most of these uh, servants were really young boys, teenagers. They love that because they grow them up in the military, make them Roman centurions. And just so you know, um, servants were, were not seen as personal, more just material. It's like they're just your inventory. And as soon as a servant is like dysfunctional or loses his ability to perform duties for you, you get rid of him and get a new one. So what are you seeing already? Interesting that the centurion has a fondness for his servant. Like that, that's not normal, right? So there, there are character traits, there are attributes in the centurion who is, at this point, all according to all records, not a believer of God, is not of the Holy Spirit, does not love Jesus, he knows who Jesus is, and, and most people are gonna say, he, at this point there's unbelief and he's gonna come what Christians call conversion, he's gonna become someone who loves Jesus and, and knows him in a saving way. We're going to see that in, in a little bit. but So this is where he is. And, and Matthew says, if you read his account, that he was at home, the servant was at home, paralyzed with illness. Laying on his bed, can't even get up and walk. So this is very, a very, very sick servant. This centurion, for whatever reason, loves this servant, cares about this servant. And look at what he says, verse 3. Let's keep going. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he hears that Jesus is making his way to Capernaum. So now he's nearby. He's sent to Jesus Elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Okay, you're, fo you're following the story, right? Okay, and here's what I love. Listen, if you're going to write the Bible, and you're going to write it historically, and you're going to cover details, you don't include stuff like this, unless it's true. Okay, because this goes against the grain of, of first century living. Everyone knows that a centurion, if he had someone who was sick, would never ask a Jewish not, not, not only a Jew, but a Jewish prominent leader of a community to go to Jesus and do him a favor. Like, that's humiliating. Like, we're the Gentiles. We're Roman centurions. We don't, people need to ask. We tell people what to do. Let alone the divide between Jew and Gentile that existed. And so fascinating that the centurion asks this servant who's sick. He wants to heal him. He doesn't go himself. He asks Jewish leaders 
He doesn't even ask the Roman cohort. He asked the Jewish elders at the time to go and ask Jesus if he would come and heal him. And understand, um, he knew who Jesus was, right? I mean, we, we've been reading repeatedly in Luke how Jesus' fame is spreading throughout all the surrounding regions. I mean, he's healing people, casting out demons. I mean, he's, he's the circus act of the day for some who are just confused but love watching him. They're wowed by his stuff. They don't love him as a person. They don't want to believe in him as God, but they just like his stuff and his miracles and the ways that he just does apparently supernatural magic. So whatever it is, to some degree, he knew about Jesus. He knew what Jesus was capable of. At this point, that's all we know. So he sends these Jewish elders to ask them, ask Jesus to come and heal his son. So what's interesting, too, is the Jewish leaders go. Why, why in the world would you go? You, you hate the Romans. You, you hate what they're doing. No, no one liked them. So we're going to go do you a favor? You're oppressing our people. You're invading our land. You're doing governing around us that we don't like. So why am I going to go for you and do you a favor? Well, it speaks to, again, the centurion. Clearly he had somehow established good rapport with them. There was something different about him. There was some weird sort of love he had got grown for the Jews, which, which railed against the entire system of the day. So they go, and his friends go, and, like, and they, they go to Jesus, these Jewish elders. And they go, hey, can you, Jesus, can you do us a favor? There's this servant of a Roman centurion. Can you come heal him? Now, there's a reason the centurion won't go directly to Jesus. And why he has the Jewish community leaders go. You're going to see it in a minute. He doesn't feel worthy. Profound. Okay, we're going to, we're going to get there. Verse 4, let's keep watching the story unfold. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Okay. Now you're starting to see a bit of the heart, right? You're starting to see a little bit of the, 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 this, this real heart temperature of these Jewish leaders, right? These Jewish elders of the day. So, so here's what you're, you're basically seeing. They, they come to Jesus and they're pleading with him. And look at the reason why they think Jesus should respond and find favor on the centurion's servant. He's worthy. And then they're like, here, let me just roll out his good deeds list, all right? He, like, he, he loves J Jews. I mean, he's, he's a gentle. Isn't that amazing? He's, he loves our nation. Hey, and the, the Pramus Project, he helped us build it. Like, he just, he just went over there, got all, everybody together, just started funding it, paying for it, and building it up. I mean, this guy, look at all his good stuff that he's done. He's a morally good guy. That's why, God, you're obligated to do something kind to him. Do you already see the, 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 the separation, the chasm in belief system of self-righteous thought and saving thought? Of grace and non-grace? Of merit and non-merit? They're saying he deserves this. Amazing. Um, and, and guys, this is what religious people are about, right? It doesn't really matter matter where you fall, every system outside of Christianity is religious in a, in, a, in a sense. Or it's about obtaining something by something that you do. There's some sort of earning. There's some motivation in you where there's, it's never totally free. Grace is never free. It's always bought in some way, whether with only a penny or a hundred bucks. Okay, but, but anything outside of free grace in Christ is not Christianity. It is not the gospel of grace. 
And so, so here we're seeing that this is amazing where we're, we're seeing what religious people are about. Their entire system is based on being worthy and not worthy. That's the system. You're either worthy or you're not. It's all about merit, all about works, all about what you do or don't do that earns divine favor. That's what, that's what it is. And so um, this is how you can know if you're simply religious or Christian. Um, the religious person, their entire relationship with God is contract-based. It's not covenant-based. Right, so what you do is you, you enter into this seeming relationship with Jesus, but you've got your whole footnotes and commands of things that he has to follow through on if you're going to follow him, if you're going to submit to him, right? So what it works is when you sin, you feel like you owe God, right? So okay, I, I need to clean up a little bit. I need to read my Bible a lot this week, even though I haven't read in six years. I'm just going to read a few verses, right? And then, then I'm going to start praying. I might go to church. I'll check out that, and then that'll, that'll kind of earn me some more, you know, brownie points, and then maybe I'll do a good deed, give a dollar to a homeless man. You just start building up your supply, and then once you're done, here's what happens. Then when you th- once you think you perform well, then you think God owes you. So when you sin, you owe God, and when you do really well, he owes you. Listen, here's the truth of the scriptures. God does not owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. He owes you nothing. And what does he give you? Grace. When we deserve hell, he gives you rescuing and ransoming. When you deserve punishment, when you deserve a debt that needs to be paid, he pays for it for you. So so God is endlessly gracious and faithful and generous. So we can never accuse him of not being that way. And and it's just amazing what this happens. So here's what we do. We, We think by some way, whether it's karma, reincarnation, other belief system you have, or just good works, you're trying to pay back God for the lacking in you. And that just will never work. It'll never produce the righteousness that's required, which is why he just said in the Sermon on the Mount, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who hunger and aren't just enthralled by their own righteousness, they're enthralled by the righteousness outside of themselves that's offered to them in Jesus, right? So it's just this amazing, amazing, amazing picture we're seeing. And so here is what these people are saying. Hey, Jesus, you owe him because look at his list. He deserves you to be kind. He's loved our nation. He's been generous in the synagogue. In, in, an, in an anti-Gentile Jew day, he's, he's actually shown love. So listen, is this guy a good guy? Yeah. Is he just a relatively morally good man? It seems like he is. You can't deny that. He had character. He didn't have divine character, but he had worldly character. He loved not with the love empowered by Christ and the Holy Spirit, but he loved as a good citizen. No one can deny that. So this man with all intensive purposes was a good, relatively morally upstanding man. That's who this centurion is. And that's what the religious leaders in this day and our day today don't get, is that we don't pay God back. Jesus did. Jesus paid God for our sin. So the debt that was owed, he said, here you go, Father. It's all in me. I'm taking it all on, and I'm going to pay you for them. So they can inherit and receive my payment. 
right? Amazing, amazing here. And so here, here's what's incredible to me, that they don't come to Jesus in humility, in a true understanding of the gospel going, hey, Jesus, do you think there's grace for this guy? Like, like do, you, do you think you could find it in your soul? I know that he is not perfect. Is there grace for him? Could you heal his servant? And instead, what do they do? They come religiously to Jesus and go, hey, you owe him. Heal him. They're playing the role of God, right? They're not submitting to God. They're not coming under his authority. They're saying, hey, he deserves this from you. He's worthy. Now, we said that this guy, for all intents and purposes, at this point, accounts so far he's a good man. Now, despite the error in the Jew- Jewish leader's reasoning, here's the thing. Guys, you've got to see this. Jesus still goes. Like, he still goes. That's grace. I mean, can you imagine if you're the God of the universe, which none of us will ever be, praise God, and, and we somehow thought like him, thought we could think like him. Listen, I'm telling you, someone comes to me, and I know they're wicked inside. They haven't lived up to my standard, and I'm a, just a ruler. I can do whatever I want. Someone comes to me arrogantly and says, hey, you need to go do this for them. They deserve it. I'd be like, no way. I ain't doing that. You find somebody else. Right, and Jesus just shows grace even in him saying, yeah, I'll go still. I'm still going to go, even though you're blind to the reason. Jesus still goes, verse 6, and Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the house of the centurion, the centurion sent friends. Now he's sending more people again to meet Jesus. You think at this point Jesus is like, hey, dude, I'm coming. Like, stop sending people to interrupt me. I'm an omniscient. I'm God. Like, I already knew he was sick. Yet he sends more friends. But look at this. It's so interesting why he sends friends this time. Something's changing in him. And they communicated for the centurion, saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. So Jesus still decides to go with him. According to Matthew's gospel, he said Jesus had every intention of healing the servant. He left to go heal the servant. So Jesus knew that. Other people didn't know that. Okay, but Jesus left intending to heal the centurion's servant. And as Jesus is approaching the house, probably with hundreds of people, listen, these were massive crowds. They're coming through the town. It's noisy. There's dust spilling up. Listen, of course he knows Jesus is on his way. I mean, it looks like the rodeo circus, the running of the bulls. There's just a ton of people invading this little town. And as he gets closer, something in the centurion isn't quite right. There's an uneasiness. So he grabs some of his friends and goes, oh, man, I know I asked for Jesus. I can't believe he's actually coming. I'm really not worthy. Hey, can you go stop and say, hey, hey, it's okay, but I know where you're at. You don't have to come see me. I'm not even worthy for you to come in my house, but, but stay where you're at because I know the power of even your word can heal my servant. Just even out there. You don't even need to come in my house. And I love, I love that his reason is, I'm not worthy, humble, aware of a need for grace. I mean, in, 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 in light of you, as Jesus is getting closer, he's saying, I'm not worthy. I mean, look at the contrast between self-righteousness and a humble heart that realizes his need. 
I mean, look at, look at the two different ones. I mean, one is saying, right, treating Jesus like Santa Claus, right? He doesn't deserve coal. He deserves a lot of good gifts. He's been a good boy this year, so just dump good gifts. And then you got the other side of this humble man in a posture of repentance going, I'm not worthy. I'm not even worthy for you to be in my house. You don't owe me anything. You don't even owe me healing. But I know if you say the word, I know yeah, there's power in you to heal my servant. What, what's, what's happening? What are we seeing? You're seeing what is true throughout the scriptures. As Jesus becomes more clear to you, and as, as he gets closer to you, you know what you start realizing? How unworthy you are and how utterly holy he is. Right? I mean, I mean the closer he gets to the house of your heart, it's like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Reality. Right? The, the blinders start coming off your face. No way. No way. No way. I, I know the glory of Christ. I, I've seen what, no, no. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of your time. I'm not worthy of grace. I'm not worthy of forgiveness. I'm not worthy of what you lavish on me in the cross of Christ. I'm not, not worthy of any of that. And, and as Jesus comes, he's almost having this second thought, this gut reaction of just, just stay there. And here's what's so beautiful here. When he says, don't trouble yourself, that's the word to be just totally agitated. So, so here's what he's saying. I don't want to agitate how holy you are. Because I know in, in, in being around my unworthiness, it's only going to agitate your holiness. So don't, don't trouble yourself. Don't even come closer. This is just so profound. And I think we see this throughout the scriptures, don't we? Luke's already mentioned it. Luke chapter 5, right? When we got Peter there, he's on the boat. And there's all those uh, people fishing and he sees the divine miracle of Jesus. And, and what does he say? Oh, depart from me, Lord. Like, just, just there's got to be a separation here because I can't even be in your presence. I think one that I love is in Isaiah chapter 6. I thought about this as, as I was writing it this week, and, and I just want to throw that up on the screen just to, to look at it really, really quickly. Um, and here's what you've got to understand. When people in the Old Testament were reading this or seeing this or thinking of this, they thought who Isaiah was seeing was God the Father, most likely, right? But if you read John 12, John 12 gives you a window into who Isaiah is really looking at. And John 12, he just kind of lists out for him right there. There's these people that saw the miracles of Jesus. They, believe, they didn't believe in him. Then there are other people that saw the miracles of Jesus and then had saving faith. And in the midst of all that, he says, Isaiah said these things about people believing, not believing, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So John is showing us that Isaiah saw Jesus he doesn't see God the Father. He sees Jesus Christ. So if you go to Isaiah 6, this is what Isaiah, or this is what John is talking about. Look at what Isaiah 6 says. And I'm going to read just, just a little before and after what's on the screen. Okay, Isaiah chapter 6. That, that's the key uh, that we're going we're to look at. Isaiah 6 says this. He gets this vision of Jesus Christ, right? 6 verse 1, we'll just start there, work our way down. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. One called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Okay, so he is seeing Jesus in all his glory. He gets a, a vision. He's getting to see a part of it. He's getting to see by God's kindness to him just a 10% mere foggy vision of him still in his sinful self. God lets him see Jesus for who he really is. Not just on the earth walking, but, but in glory, where he is now. And, and there are just these creatures around him who by nature are totally holy because they can't even be in the presence of God without being holy. And they're still declaring that there's something set apart about Jesus. So you follow that? Like, like, like even think of the most holy, pure creatures that can be with God. Even they are in heaven going, you're so set apart and so different and so holy. I mean, what does that do to us on the earth, sinful, broken men and women? I'm done, right? I mean, if these beings are saying that, I'm done. And then I love what this does to Isaiah. What's the first thing he realizes when he sees Jesus? My mouth is dirty. He's a prophet, right? I mean, I'm, I'm reading this going, man, this is a prophet, and he's worried about some things he said that were dirty? And look at my rap sheet. I'm like, if that's what this reveals, if he looks at Jesus and, and that type of sin, I mean, we'd be like, that's kind of a minor sin, right? That ain't like a big varsity sin. I mean, he just said some things. Lips are unclean, right? And we're like, man, where's the adultery? Where's the stealing? Where's the murder? He goes, no, no. He's so utterly holy that the smallest, seemingly insignificant sin in your life is just exposed, right? And I love why. Because I've seen him. I'm looking at him. My eyes have seen him. And this is what's happening to the centurion servant. He's seeing him get closer. And as he gets closer, his sin is revealed. You know, maybe some of you guys come in here uh, today and, and maybe you... You're like the centurion without belief, though. As we're seeing the belief kind of come out of his heart, you stop short and you think, well, I'm a relatively good guy, good woman. I, I'm successful like him. I love people. I don't steal Skittles from 7-Eleven. I'm pretty good. I mean, I, I don't really hate my neighbor. hate the way they cut the grass, but I don't hate them. Right? I mean, you just, you, you're a relatively good man, good Woman, you know, what, you know what the problem is? You're spending your whole life comparing yourself to other people. But as soon as you compare yourself to Jesus, you see your sin. You compare yourself to people all day long. You can find, listen, we can find anybody in the world to look better than, right? I mean, any of us, man, even those, the most wicked person in jail can find someone who committed a worse crime and deserves worse than him. Always. And, 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 and so maybe you are saying, man, I don't understand. Why give my life to Jesus? I believe in God. I'm good. Because that's not sufficient. And what that does is just add to your self-righteous thought. And it makes you pride in your smug religion, right? So you sit up high and go, well, look at everything I've achieved. And you're just like these people, missing it. You come to Jesus religiously and not humbly, repentantly. <laughs> you don't see him as Savior. You see him as just a giver of stuff that you add and perform for and, 
listen, growing up for me, this was me. This was me. Like, I grew up in a, a Christian home, Christian parents, Christian siblings. Man, I, I attended youth group every Wednesday, Tuesday, Sunday, Saturday. Brought all my friends. I got good grades. Captain of sports. Three-year athlete. I considered myself a relatively good guy. I, I, honestly, looking back, I probably would have even said, I'm not, I'm not like a nasty sinner. I mean, so my ethic in life, my, the thing that just kind of revolved around me, I thought Christianity, the Christian ethic, the Christian code was just don't do the things that God hates. Right? So I didn't cuss. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't have sex. I didn't, you know, really get involved in those big major sins. So, so I thought I was good. And you know what's amazing? I started reading my Bible. <laughs> you know what happened is I started reading the Gospels in the Bible. I started looking at this guy, Jesus. And you know what I began to discover? <laughs> that I was much more sinful than I ever thought I was. Because I compared myself my whole life to everybody else. And Jesus was going, do you see the pride in you? Do, do you see how wickedly arrogant you are? And you think that because you go to youth group, because you give people rides in your minivan with no hubcaps, that's humble, right? I, honestly, these are legit thoughts. I'm like, well, at least I'm not driving them in like a Mercedes. So I'm getting more points. I mean it, everything. I got, I got no hubcaps on this. We call it the red machine. Just quick, to, I mean, it was just amazing. We just, and every time I went to King's Dominion, my dad would veer off because he'd fall asleep and we'd get on the rumble strip and lose the hubcaps. That's how we, that's how we got, for, but anyways, that's, that's how we got no hubcaps. But I, I used to think, I mean, it had dents in the side. It was the, Throw all the cross guys in there to go to practice. I'm just thinking, literally, look at even in the car that I drive. Look at how humble I am. I mean, it's just, just outright wicked. And God began to reveal to me just how unrighteous I was. I mean, there's no pursuit of him. There's no studying of the scriptures. There's no, no prayer life. There's no, it's all just external stuff. It's just a veneer I hid behind. And all of a sudden, as I'm reading the gospels, I'm reading the life of Jesus, I'm going, who is this man? I've heard about him my whole life. I've heard him preached about. But I never compared myself to him. I was in a contract relationship with him. I thought he deserved to give me stuff when I acted well as a good boy. He was my cosmic vendor. Heard that this week. What a great description of how we treat God. Is he your cosmic vendor? You do good stuff. You pay the bills and then you expect stuff to pop out that you want. Is that who he is, or, or is he the one that you don't deserve anything from, and anything he gives you is a gift? So guys, comparing yourself to others, you're just going to grow in self-righteous sin. Compare yourself to Jesus, and you'll grow in humble repentance. So this is what's happening, right? This is what's happening to the centurion. And his, his true belief is starting to show in the midst of his unworthiness, because he calls him Lord. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself. This, this is the ascribed name for like sovereign God, deity. He says, you're Lord, just like Peter back in Luke 5. You're Lord. You're divine. I know who you are. You're coming to my house. I know who you are. You're not just a guy. You're not just a moral teacher. You're not somebody who just spits out cute facts and does some you know, worldly magic. You are otherworldly. You are divine. You are the God-man. 
I know who you are, and I know you are totally righteous and totally holy, and you're not coming into my house because I can't stand to be in your presence because I'm so aware of who I am. Amazing. Amazing that this is happening to him. And we continue to see this belief being revealed. Look at verse 8. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to another servant, do this, and he does it. You know what he's doing? You know what he's saying? He's identifying his worldly authority with his divine authority. He's going, look, I know what it's like to be an authority. I know what it's like to, to tell somebody, hey, do this, and they do it for me. I know what it's like to command people. I know what it's like to speak, and things are done. Things happen. Okay, he goes, I know what it's like to have ruling, to have authority in my little insignificant universe. But you, your authority, you speak, and people are healed. You have divine speech. You speak, and the universe is made. You speak and people rise from the dead. You speak and people are, are, demons are cast out of them. You speak and people are saved and brought into a new kingdom. I mean, he is understanding fully who Jesus is. And he's identifying with his own authority and worldliness how he is totally unworthy in God's authority and God's holiness and his divine authority. So he, this is amazing. This is a guy, a guy who just spends his life commanding people, telling them what to do, and he realizes, no, you, you tell me what to do. You are Lord. You are God. You are sovereign one. Amazing. Amazing. What humility. And he says, all I can do for my servant is tell him what to do. You can make him well. I'm limited in my authority. You have no limits. Verse 9, look at what happens where we end. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Amazing. Jesus? Now, I know you're thinking, what's the Greek? I mean, Jesus can't marvel at anybody. No, he marveled at him. That was his humanity marveling at the faith of this man. This man had such faith and belief that Jesus was astonished. You know what it means in the Greek? Astonished. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, I love this, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned home to the house, they found the servant healed. So Jesus is coming to the house. The people meet him halfway. The house is a couple yards that way. He sees the centurion's house. His friends meet him and say, hey, hold up. Our friend, he, he, he's not worthy. He knows your Lord. But he knows if you stand right here, you can just speak and his servant will be healed. So Jesus turns around and there's a mass. And he turns around the crowd and he goes, Guys, you know, I've looked for someone like this with a humble, saving belief in all of Israel. And I can't find one because you're so consumed with your self-righteousness. I can't even find one. But look at this guy. Look at this centurion. 
He's a model for you. I haven't found faith like this in anybody. Hey, look at his humble, keen awareness for grace. Look at his understanding of who I am. Take notes from this guy. That's what he's saying. It's an indictment on the people of Israel. What a sad indictment, right? I mean, I haven't even found faith like this in anybody else. All you guys think grace is bought. All you guys think grace is bartered. You guys all come to me saying, hey, you deserve to do this and do this and do this. And you think I, I owe you stuff. You think it's by what you look like. This veneer you hide behind. That's what make you, makes you righteous. And you preach all this stuff. You don't forgive anybody. You condemn people. You don't love your enemies. You are not spiritually poor. You're spiritually blind. You're not spiritually hungering, thirsting for righteousness. You're spiritually full. You think you're good. Everybody speaks well of you. No one mocks you. No one persecutes you. Don't you realize you're not in the kingdom of heaven? You're in the kingdom of the world that will be damned forever if you don't turn to Christ. He goes, this guy, kingdom of heaven. This is what a beatitude looks like. Amazing what Jesus is showing here. It just, amazing. You know, I think, I think Paul in his uh, letter to the Romans alludes to this, right? He says, Man, you've got adoption as, rights to adoption as sons and daughters. Man, you've got all the covenants at your hands. You have the scriptures, but you know what? You've got a righteousness that's your own. It's not saving. And so he says, man, I'd rather be cut off so the people in Israel could have this saving belief, this saving righteousness. I'd rather be cursed. I'd rather not be rescued by God so that others could. It's like you're so close. You're, you're so close. You have everything you need, but you're not leaning into the one who is the righteous. You're leaning into everything else that you think is going to make you righteous. The covenants don't make you righteous. The scriptures don't make you righteous. Like you reading the Bible does not make you a Christian, right? I mean, Jesus Christ makes you a Christian. He makes you one of his. And then you love reading the Bible because it talks about the one who made you one of his. And it reveals to you who he is and what he's done and what he's like. I love verse 10, you know, his servant was healed. Matthew tells us that he was healed in that very moment. Of course, all the people run back to do what? what, what are they, they want to see if Jesus is legit. I mean, let's get to the house. He just said the servant's healed. Let's run, sprint to the house, and see if the servant is raised and he's totally healed. Why? The belief of the centurion. His belief in Jesus healed the man. Yes, Christ did it, but it was Christ seeing the belief in the centurion. His saving belief in Jesus, I believe, validates it by healing the servant. You know, I want to look at, let me say one thing, then we'll look at Matthew's account at the very end, and then we'll, then we'll be done. Um, at this point, Jesus could have responded very differently, right? Because I remember this when I first started really understanding the gospel of grace. Jesus, I mean, I remember thinking I'm not worthy, right? That's the first step. You realize you're sinful. You realize that there's nothing you can do to possibly gain union with God, reconciliation with God. You see sin for what it is. You don't cover it up, hide it, try to make it pretty justified. You just, your soul is bare. You understand it. I can't do anything to be made right with this God who is good and beautiful and holy and glorious and all that he is, right? I need something else to be, be done for me. I need someone else to take my place. I need someone else to be righteous for me. I need, I need something, right? Um, as this guy comes and the guy's saying, hey, I'm just unworthy, here's what's, here's what's awesome. 
Jesus has every right to say to all of us, right, that's, that's, you're totally right. You're not worthy. I should turn around right now and go about my ministry. I don't need to heal your servant. You know what? You're right. You are sinful, wicked. I'm just going to. And you know what? That would have been totally right and totally just and totally fair. Here's what's amazing. But Jesus still, he goes, I know you're not worthy, Mike. I know you're not worthy, Sarah. I know you're not worthy, Brian. I know. I know you're a wicked sinner. I know you try to steal my glory daily. I know that you try to rob me of my joy and my, my worth. And I know you try to build your own kingdom for yourself. I know you trust in so many other things outside of my righteous life. I, I know you. I know. But not because you're worthy, but because my son is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to count you worthy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to choose to make you worthy. So that that's where we get identity from. Your worth, right, is where? In Christ. We hear that all the time. I need to preach that to my heart much more than I do, right? My worth is there, not in ministry, not in counseling, not in preaching. I mean, what's, what's it for you? I don't know where, you, where your worth's being laid out right now. The thing that you love, the thing you put on the mantle of your heart, that if I have this or do this, then I, I have worth now. Okay, no, no, you don't have any because you're unworthy. Christ alone makes you worthy at all. So, so if your identity is pushed into him and what he's done on the cross of Christ, then you go, I've got great worth. I've got insurmountable worth. I've got unending eternal worth in Christ. So I'm good, I'm secure, I'm whole, I'm complete. So I throw myself on his mercy seat. Jesus could have said that, yet the gospel says otherwise. And he's demonstrating that here. I know you're unworthy, but I haven't found such faith like this. You've got saving faith. I'm going to go heal your servant. Look at Matt, the way Matthew ends, and then we'll finish. Let me look at this. Matthew chapter 8. You can flip, it'll be on the screen. You can also flip over. This is the same account of the same story. And this really, really stuck out to me. And then we'll, we'll close in prayer and ask God for grace. Um, Matthew chapter 8. We'll look at 11 and 12 on the screen. Let me just start right, uh, yeah, above it. Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Right? We just, just read that. But look what Matthew includes. Jesus said something else here. <laughs> he said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline, recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. See, there's kingdom of heaven again. Salvation. While the sons of the kingdom, that's Israel, Jews, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, hey, by the way, um, I know that all of you standing here in the crowd think that your ethnicity and your lineage, because your dad's Adam, Isaac, and Jacob, that you're somehow ransomed and saved and made right. Like you think you're going to go sit at the table in heaven with your dads who are in your line. Um, what is, he, what is he revealing? People from the east are going to come and west. East of Israel, west of Israel. Who's that? Gentiles. Right? And they're seeing it with the centurion servant. They're seeing it with the centurion who is a Gentile. He's saying, hey, this is a, this is a global thing. You, you know what, you know what lo, lo, levels the playing field? Not your ethnicity, not what you do or don't do, not if your spouse is a Christian or your husband's a Christian or your parents are Christians or your families are Christians or you attend a Christian church. No, no, you know what levels the playing field? That you know Jesus. 
Like, like, like Christ alone is the one who makes you a Christian. And, and here's why we have to see this, guys. I mean, because I, I was thinking about us. I mean, how many of us here today are thinking that our upbringing, upbringing saves us? Or, yeah, I mean, my parents are Christians, so I'm a Christian. Or maybe you're here with your spouse. They just drag you here. Every week. I mean, maybe you think that somehow brings you in. You're going to sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're not. I mean, what if you're in here and you think, well, I mean, I, I come to cab. Well, showing up to cabin save you. I mean, look who your pastor is, right? I mean, like, like clearly, like coming to cab doesn't save you. You know what saves you? Jesus makes you right before God. Church doesn't make you right before God. Your extended family, your ethnicity, you growing up as a Gentile Jew, doesn't matter. Man, the gospel of Jesus Christ makes the family of God. His atoning work on the cross makes the family of God. His righteous life on behalf of sinners makes the family of God. It's, it's him alone that makes the family of God. God. And so would we consider this morning that, that reality? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. It's a righteous life for the unrighteous. One for all. One death. One resurrection. It's not about your lineage. It's not about who you're with. It's not about who you're married to. It's not about even what you claim. It's, it's, it's Jesus. You know, guys, I, I love, I love um, the imagery here because uh, we see in the centurion and in the servant, I think, Jesus, right? How he's so much better than all of them. How he's greater than them. The centurion, this, this man was a guy who was supposed to give his life if necessary to, 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 to saving people, maybe dying to secure their freedom. He was a guy that got, that got scars, that got battle wounds. He was a guy that cared about his servant. He cared about those who were his. Well, I mean, what are you seeing? I mean, what did, what did Jesus do? Jesus is a centurion of the universe, I mean, Jesus leads the army of adopted sons and daughters against the, 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 the war of Satan, sin, and death. I mean, he's leading Ephesians 6, the battle, right? He's our centurion, right? He's the leader. He's the head. He's got, he's got scars from the cross. But, man, what does he say to not just his servant? He doesn't need to ask somebody else to make us well. No, I make you well. But he's got greater power than this centurion who says, hey, I need someone else to come and heal my servants. He says to his church, who are his servants, who are his people, who are his people purchased with the blood-bought, rescuing, ransoming nature of the cross of Christ. He says, hey, I make you well through my resurrection. You're mine now. And he cares for his people. He shows love like the centurion. And then, and then the servant, I love this, right? He, the servant was always told what to do. But Jesus is much better than this servant. What does Philippians 2 say? That God, who was our centurion, humbled himself to the point of being a servant, being fully obedient to the point of death on a cross. Like he's the, he's the perfect picture of a servant. He became our suffering servant, suffered for us. He did whatever the Father told him to do for the sake of others. He is the most perfect, majestic, glorious servant you've ever laid your eyes on. Right? We're seeing that here. That's where Luke wants us to be pointed to, and he wants to transform our hearts. Let's ask him to help us to do that. God, help us not just to read this stuff and just be the same person leaving today. I'm the first to admit it is so hard, Lord, to consider truth and then appropriately walk in light of what I've heard. We need your help. We need your transformative power. We need your Holy Spirit to do something that we can't do. God, I just want to Take a minute, Father, to thank you for your grace and kindness towards sinners. God, I pray if there are people in this room who feel shame, guilt, 
condemnation, as they, as they take their, themselves, as, as they take their mind to the deepest, darkest place they've ever been, that they would see Jesus saying, I took your shame. I took the right judgment towards you in your sin. I, I'm, I'm making you mine. If you repent of that sin and turn to me and believe and trust that I alone make you righteous, that I alone rescue, that I alone ransom. God, I pray for those of us in this room who might just be living a deeply self-righteous life, not a Christian life, but a religious life. May you free us from our religious thoughts, our religious ways. May you humble us graciously by seeing Jesus, who's holy. And as Jesus comes closer to us and closer to us through the preached word, through prayer, through song, through the Lord's Supper, as we see him and remember him, would you change us? Would you humble us? We thank you for the grace you've shown and that you desire to show in making unworthy people worthy by nothing we do but what Jesus Christ does for us. In his name we pray, amen.